I'm Phil Rickaby, and I've been a writer and performer for almost 30 years. But I've realized that I don't really know as much as I should about the theater scene outside of my particular Toronto bubble. Now, I'm on a quest to learn as much as I can about the theater scene across Canada. So join me as I talk with mainstream theater creators you may have heard of, and indie artists you really should know, as we find out just what it takes to be stage-worthy. Emilio Vieira is an actor and creator appearing as Palamon in Shakespeare Bashed's production of Two Noble Kinsmen, playing at the Theatre Centre from January 25th to February 4th. In this conversation, we talk about what makes a Shakespeare Bashed production unique, Emilio's history with Shakespeare, how to survive a season at a repertory theatre festival, and much more. Here's our conversation. Right off the top, let's talk about uh, Shakespeare Bash's uh, Two Noble Kinsmen. Um, what role are you playing in, in Two Noble Kinsmen? I'm playing Palamon. Palamon is one of the Two Noble Kinsmen, the other kinsman being Arsite. And um, he is a very noble, very chivalric, very accomplished soldier of Thebes as is his cousin. The two of them, um, as I think one of my lines is, are twins of honor. And um, the play sort of, uh, you know, Two Noble Kinsmen is, a, is one of those ones that's never done. One of Shakespeare's latest uh, that he co-wrote with John Fletcher. Working on the show is very interesting in that you can kind of feel Shakespeare v. Uh, Fletcher throughout. Um, but, uh, but yeah, it sort of begins with um, the, the two of us uh, after a war has um, has broken out, our uncle Creon, who is the king of Thebes, um, we've sort of agreed is uh, not honorable, not chivalric, and uh, he no longer deserves us to fight on his side. Um, so we discuss leaving the city, but realize that as um, as the king of Athens, the um, Duke Theseus is on his way over, that we're going to have to go to war one last time. Um, through the course of that, we we say to ourselves, we're doing this for our country, not for our uncle Creon, and we are taken prisoner. That's where the real drama begins, as we encounter uh, a wonderful, beautiful princess, Emilia, who we both fall in love with, and therein lies a tale. Um, as you mentioned, uh, Two Noble Kinsmen is 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 not. It's one of the plays that's that's not frequently done. There's I mean, everybody, there's the big four. Everybody does the big four. And then there's a, a bunch of other ones that are done less frequently. And then there's a, there's a, a, a group of them, which people hardly ever touch. And Two Noble Kinsmen is, is one of those. In your mind, what is it that people are afraid of about the show or don't like about the show? Do you have a sense of why it's not often performed? I'll certainly say that um, from my perspective as an actor who does a lot of Shakespeare, Maybe because it's Fletcher as well, but the language is really um, quite challenging. I actually don't think that it's that hard to understand 
once we've done all of the work to make it uh, as understandable as possible. Um, but uh, on, on face value, simply because it hasn't been done as frequently as some of the big four, as you say, um, we, we don't recognize the humanity and relatability of it as upfront as we may do with some of the others. And that just may be part of the long-term culture of doing plays. Um, I actually think that, yeah, especially with Shakespeare Bashed, who is a, um, a group of people I love working with that are absolutely hooked on the text, trying to break it down, make it as digestible as possible. That is the prime focus um, from which to tell the story. Uh, I think that I think that in our work, our production has done a really great job of uh, making it accessible. Um, there are moments of great comedy, uh, of great tragedy, of total relatabil relatability for the human experience that I think will shock an audience and hopefully leave them asking, why is it that we that we don't see this one more often? It tells some some truly human moments that um, that we can all recognize, wars within ourselves over what we truly feel, um, honor versus, you know, desire to do something, what it is that is expected of us versus what we truly want and how society plays a role in all of that. Um, in my mind, you know, I, I selfishly have this nerdy um, desire to do all of Shakespeare's plays before I die, and this is one of the ones that never gets done. So an opportunity to get to do Two Noble Kinsmen, how fantastic. Um, but I have seen, I think, a, um, uh, maybe it was during the pandemic, a, a digital, you know, version, a production that was done and, uh, and I have read it before. And every time I'm always struck with, um, some of the, some of the moments that feel perhaps that they're pushing beyond Shakespeare into his contemporaries, uh, that feel so colloquial that, Particularly for Palamon, he is, uh, I think, a person that lives in a very high emotional state throughout a lot of the show. And in trying to express himself, he has many, many run-on sentences. His sort of parenthetical thoughts to color how he's truly feeling seem to pop in almost at random. And it has been hard to work on as an actor, as I said before. Um, but the, that in that challenge is to really motivate what is it like when you are at this emotional state? These things are happening to you. How do you respond to them? How do you articulate them to the people around you? And as you can see, me having no trouble with run-on sentences, it seems to be a, uh, um, a perfect balance with which to, uh, to work on that aspect of humanity. I am in an emotional state. Something is happening to me. How do I express that? What are my avenues through it? Um, yeah, I find it totally delicious to work on. Yeah. You mentioned something uh, earlier about how you know, it's, it's easy for people to, to digest the language once the actors have done all of their work, um, which is, I think, one of the, the the big things about Shakespeare in that, you know, a lot of people's first experiences with Shakespeare is in high school with and, and reading it with a bunch of students who haven't done that work. Um, so it's no wonder that that I mean, we teach Shakespeare so poorly in, in schools, um, but it, it, it's that that puts a bad taste in people's mouths that that because they don't understand it they haven't seen a bunch of actors who've done all the research and all the work to make the words make sense um do you recall your first experience with shakespeare bad or good uh, bad or good um 
I'll, I'll just start by saying I'm actually, um, you know, at the time of this recording tomorrow, I will be um, teaching a class uh, at high school, some some grade 12s. And one of the speeches we are going, going to look at is a speech from Two Noble Kinsmen by the jailer's daughter, because I find it so accessible. She's saying exactly what she means. It's, it's pretty easy to break down language. I'm going to lean on that rather than go to a Mackers or an R&J because it's, you know, very fresh in my mind, but in hearing Julia do it, I go, oh my gosh, this is totally an accessible um, monologue, I think, for this age group. And so I'm very excited to dive into that with them and hopefully give them an opportunity to hear a show that they is certainly not part of any curriculum I've been a part of. Um, my very first experience with Shakespeare, I'm having a hard time remembering the very first, but it may have been my high school went to a production Heart House of Julius Caesar. And it was the first time that I'd really seen Shakespeare with full, um, you know, like um, unified theatrical experience. It wasn't just those of us reading it in our classroom. It was people wholly embodying those characters, fighting on behalf of what they want. It was very cool to have, you know, the, the storm that Casca goes out into. And I remember thinking that I'm not necessarily catching every word of this. There are bits of this that I would like to know more about, but that it is moving through in such a way that I'm grasping the, the, the concepts that these people are going for. And it, it's, uh, it certainly enkindled a sense of, um, you know, oh, if I could just get to know a little bit more about this, about, about what they're saying full on. And it had nothing to do with the actors, really. It was my, I guess, my um, lack of experience with it at the time. But, but it was kind of addicting to go, oh, wow, this is just really, it's moving and moving and moving. And um, I, I, I would love to go back and look at when that would have been and who was in it that maybe I know now and can ask, what did you think of that show? Or what, you know, um, what was that like? But um, to your point about, you know, um, Shakespeare not necessarily being taught the best, um, the, the finest tools at hand in school, I always have to shout out my grade 10 English teacher, Carol Roseman. He was, he, he is one of the reasons that I, uh, that I took to Shakespeare so much in my later years of high school and then again in, in university because he just had a way of unlocking it for me. And as I go into my kind of teaching scenarios or workshop scenarios with younger students, I, I try to call back to what that was that he did to unlock it for us. And I, I think, you know, it, it wasn't a dusty piece to him. It was, it was real people going through real issues that we continue to experience 400 years after the fact that humanity has come so far and yet not that far at all in their human experience. And that the same questions we ask ourselves, we've been asking um, for centuries. And, and once I sort of realized that you could, you could connect to the period through your contemporary lens and kind of honor both in the exchange, then it became about it became about breaking the puzzle. It became about finding the clues in the text. What are the words I don't understand? What do they mean? How can I use these tools that are being taught me to to um uh, to break this down and make it digestible for myself and my colleagues as we work on it? And then furthermore, to take it to that step to get an audience to go, wow, I 
I've been there. I understand that human moment. And furthermore, it's making me think about my own humanity in this current moment. Uh, I think that's the thing that continues to hook me on Shakespeare. And now I've been doing it long enough that I'm coming back around to, you know, in, in, uh, in many ways, coming back around to shows that I did 10 years ago for the, for the second, sometimes third time and discovering totally new things about them because I'm in a new human space. Um, so it's very interesting as I've continued, you know, Julius Caesar, for example, that first one that I saw, um, that has a memory and, and I, I have a very visceral, um, experience of that, uh, that made me really want to play Cassius. And then I got a chance to play Cassius in school and that was a whole other thing. And then since then I've seen it a handful of other times and every time you're engaging with it, it sort of builds upon, uh, the last time with more nuance, more color. Yeah, absolutely. Because you learn, I mean, you're, you're growing as a person and your understanding of, of, of life is growing and you find more depth. Um, regarding the, the way that, that schools teach it, I've, I've thought for a number of years now that, I mean, it's hard to do because you have to hope that a production of the play that you're studying is being done, but it'd be so much more helpful to, instead of like study the play, then take the kids to see the show. It would be really great to reverse that, take them to see the show and then have them study it. Having seen a bunch of actors perform it who are making sense of the world, the words and emoting and being actors rather than a group of students who are monotonally reading text that they're seeing for the first time. Yeah. And you know, what better opportunity than us doing two noble kinsmen in January and February. There you at go. The be at the beginning of a year, you know, um, uh, at the time that this airs your tickets for real. I, I do think that one of the things that hooked me on that, um, you know, aside from having Mr. Roseman, uh, as a, as a real shining light in that, um, my, my father used to listen to tapes of Gilgood and all of these actors, you know, he, he was sort of a fan of, um, not only of Shakespeare, but of opera and other forms of, you know, quote unquote, dusty bits of art. Um, and maybe that seeped in at some point in my early, uh, youth, but I've, I've felt compelled. I've felt called to, you know, um, I, I had a, um, a mentor say to me once that in an audience of a, of a show, any show that you, but Shakespeare, let's say Shakespeare, um, there will be people who will be experiencing it for the first time, people who will be experiencing it for the hundredth time and people who will be experiencing it for the last time. And, uh, and that we have a responsibility to each of them, um, to not disrespect that energy that an audience comes in with, which is more than 50% in your camp. That people generally don't arrive at the theater going, well, this is going to be terrible. And, you know, that they come at at least a neutral, if not an excitement to see what's coming, engage with what's going to come down the pipe. And our job as performers is to not squander that. And I, I like that as an idea rather than, oh, I have to reach out and grab them and get them on my side. They're already just there. And yeah. that is enough. Yeah. I remember um, years ago, I was doing a production of, 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 of Macbeth and I was talking about a scene that was going to happen. And somebody that I knew tangentially was on Facebook or whatever, and they were like spoilers. And I was like, the play is over 500 years old. And then it struck me, wait a second. Not everybody knows this play as well as me. Yes, I have you know, been you know, performing Shakespeare. I've done like that play three, four times by that point. But 
this person doesn't know that play as well and maybe didn't hasn't seen it or whatever we have that's kind of an exciting prospect to remember that 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 there are people who haven't seen the plays as often as we have absolutely i i get no greater joy than student audiences gasping or or finding the humor and understanding all of those human themes and going see right there that is that is somebody's experience firsthand of this moment and it's undeniable i i I find myself as an audience member being a kind of vocal audience member when you can feel the people around you sort of humming. You know, something happens, they go, hmm, that, that's sort of recognition. Um, I, especially the way that Bash does it in such a, an intimate setting um, at the theater center incubator space, we are going to, you know, James is always saying as a director, when you have a soliloquy, you are turning to your friends in the audience and parsing it out with them asking them those questions you you may in fact like pause for a reaction and then go and 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 parse out another piece of it so um it is it is terribly active which is totally the antithesis of treating it as a dusty tome to flip open 10 a.m in your english class absolutely absolutely it's 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 funny the way that you know you were mentioning like when audience discovers the play and they laugh or they react I always find it fascinating that that moment with an audience, you know, you hit a line that's funny and the audience laughs. And a few minutes before, you know, there's somebody there who's like, I don't know, going to this thing. I don't really understand Shakespeare, but you laughed. You got the joke. That means that 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 we're it's, it's working for you. And that reaction can change somebody's opinion of 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 Shakespeare forever. Yeah, we um, we've identified some of the areas in which we expect. The audience may hear something in a more contemporary lens and have a reaction. And as actors, you can never bank on that. You just got to be ready to go. Keep keep pushing. Um, uh, James is a, is a director who really gets um, you know in the in the final weeks before performance on you about pace because the it's sort of antithetical to think oh I'm I'm moving quickly through this and that will help them understand but it does because you uh sort of languishing in these things um or breaking up the thoughts makes it harder for an audience to piece out so um as we approach a um a performance pace with with this piece um those those balls are starting to drop or or, or the the pieces are starting to come into place um and even as a person working on the show watching run-throughs and as we get closer to inviting an audience to witness what we're doing i'm hearing themes that happen earlier in the play echoed at the end as we make it through one pass and begin again i'm having a whole new experience once more of oh wow i didn't realize you say that thing before i do or here's me picking up on that concept and you start to almost see meta theatrically what the playwrights are going for um which of course is not really actable, but you go with the moments that are mine to cultivate, I better do these um, with a careful hand because they exist in a greater uh, constellation that the audience will be experiencing. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you've mentioned James and we've, we're, this is a, a Shakespeare bashed production. Um, for somebody who maybe uh, hasn't experienced a Shakespeare bashed production, um, what 
what can somebody expect? What is a Shakespeare bashed Shakespeare show? I'm so glad you asked. <laughs> Shakespeare bashed Shakespeare, in my experience, I've only done one other with them, but of course I've seen um, several at this point. Um, it's a very immediate, intimate space. Um, they used to perform at the Monarch Tavern. Uh, they, since last year, performed uh, the tragedy of King Lear in the theater center incubator space, and now this show. Um, the I think one of the things that James really uh, likes to do with um, with Bash shows and, and Julia, it, it is the the pair of them um, helming the company, is that lights are up on the audience. That you know when you are there, that you will be witnessed by performers and other audience members. That it really is coming to the forum to uh experience interrogate these plays um you know do them justice for what the text actually says i think that their focus really is you know there's so much to mine out of these words out of what we're given by these editions of the text that we have and with a play like two noble kinsmen it doesn't make it into the folio so we're going off of other versions that are not necessarily you know sanctioned as the versions of the show um, I find that very exciting. So an audience member walking into the show, you know, you're going to first walk into the theater center and experience the environment of that cafe and that bar and um, know that as the prologue gets underway, the show is unfolding just beyond those doors for you. Um, the experience will be different for an audience member sitting on one side than for another. Um, you you will get to see everything as it's been staged. Um, you know, very precisely to fit that space, but it is, it is totally encompassing. Um, uh, actors will be, you know, flying right by you as they enter that narrow corridor past this curtain. Um, the energy of the piece really takes over the whole space, which in many ways is a blank canvas. You know, we, um, we don't use, a, a, a ton of costumes. We have some beautiful sound design and light design, um, which are, which are elements that amplify what we're already going for with a focus of the text, but it is not going to be a production that is focused on spectacle. It is going to achieve um, those sort of awe-inspiring moments by the merit of the language. Um, so in many ways, it is one of the uh, best ways to encounter the play for what the play is, um, rather than you know somebody's adaptation or take on it. Certainly there is a focus for this production um, that has come out of our discussions of the themes in the text. Um, we are just leaning into some of the, um, I wanted to use the word anachronistic, but that's not necessarily the case, although I think James would use that word, um, but that there are moments that echo in many different eras, uh, I think, throughout the human experience that, that we are putting on display because they are present in the text. So. You know, come have a beer, sit down, and enjoy an absolutely wild ride um, through the land of Two Noble Kinsmen, a play which you may never see done again. Mm, that's true. That's true. But it's funny, you mentioned like concepts. Um, I have seen shows and I've been involved with, with some shows where they're very, they have a very strong concept. But, you know, some people will say, and somewhat rightly, that you, could, you can put Shakespeare into anything. Um, but I've also been involved in productions where the concept is so precise, it 
gets in the way of the the actual story. So now you're having to do um, acrobatics mentally or creatively to try to make the story work based on the the concept. So you could you can do all kinds of crazy things with Shakespeare, but you also have to fit make the concept has to fit with the story. You can't just throw it into into whatever you needed to because it still has to make sense to an audience. Um, it is a danger with something that you can do anything with because there's no rights holder going to come after you. Um, <laughs> have you yourself ever been in a production that was a little too conceptual for the play itself? Oh, you're going to get me in trouble telling tales out of school here. Um, <laughs> I, I uh, have certainly been a part of some uh, truncated Shakespeare's that, you know, based on the parameters of the production or what, what they were given as a, um, uh, as a time limit, you know, I've done some 90 minute Shakespeare's where you kind of have to be uh hack and slash job and just go for, you know, one of the themes or a, or a general concept at the end of the day, I always find as an actor that you have to be in the show that you're in, not the show that you wish you were in. And it is always a great joy to be in the ones where that Venn diagram is a circle. Um, uh, <laughs> this, uh, this production, I'm certainly feeling that we, uh, you know, we have so much agency in our work as actors approaching the text with, uh, James, who is, you know, such a, an, an addict of Shakespeare's, uh, and, and really a master of, um, of the text. He's, he's asking, investigating questions. We're, encouraged to bring our own curiosity to the room and and sometimes the decisions that end up being made or not made and left to you know nightly interpretation and freedom um are out of some really um great debate so i certainly have been in those productions where you go okay well here comes the dance break and uh i don't know that shakespeare would have ever thought that that was gonna come um and that is not throwing shade on the richard ii that i did last year which I actually thought was a very successful version of um, of adaptation, um, and in which I thought uh, concept was very well used to tell uh, a new angle on that story, or or explore further an angle on that story. Um, so it really depends because I I am certainly not um, a Shakespeare purist. I think that word is kind of itchy. Um, because um, there are many ways to dive into these plays, as we've already said, and that there is as much space for the version where we just go with what is in the text and investigate based on the facts of what's written, and the versions where we go, well, where does this lead? And um, ultimately, as with any production, I, I think it comes down to how the people work together to, to tell those unified parts of the story. Um, and how much faith you have in in what you're aiming to do. It it is interesting though when you think about the big four, as you were saying, so frequently because because everyone's seen those plays. You know, how many Midsummers, how many Oranges, whatever have we seen? That the um the sort of desire is to go, well, let's put on a concept that no one's ever thought of when it comes to this play. And it's in those cases you may be doing yourself a disservice. Where I think those adaptations end up uh, doing a really great job is when they are really rooted in what is the story, what what is coming out of this play that I'm reading that um, 
that sort of feels like there is an alignment to um, this sort of question that we're investigating or um, this sort of vision. Um, I, I do think that at the end of the day, we go back, whether we are doing, um, as I did this past summer, uh, 1970s, 1980s disco Richard II, or if we're doing, as I think I'm going to be doing uh, next year or this, this coming year, um, a Romeo and Juliet in Italian Renaissance clothing. So there's a whole range with, with which success might be um, achieved. I think it always comes down to, are we investigating what's actually written about this? And can we throw away our ideas from things that we've seen before that maybe feel like they only exist because of repetition? I think maybe that's where we get ourselves into some troubles. We go, well, this is the way it's always been. Ooh, well, well, really? If you if you can investigate it through scientific methods and still find the same answer, by all means. But it is worth the investigation. We should not take it for granted. Yeah, I think I think the way this is the re- this is the way it's always been. Then is a very dangerous way to approach Shakespeare, um, and, and it is one of the reasons why I think sometimes people think it's dull um, because people get stuck into this is how it's how it's always been done. Um, now you mentioned uh, uh, last summer. Um, and the shows you're going to be doing, uh, uh, in the future, uh, you're going to be your seventh season at the Stratford festival. Um, what do you enjoy about, uh, the big festival, the, 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 the Stratford festival, um, that you don't get out of a, a smaller, uh, uh, production, like, like one, like a Shakespeare bashed. I think, you know, one of the great crimes with, uh, with, what we're doing with Shakespeare Bash right now is that we only get to do 10 performances, but it is also uh, a real treat coming out of the, the festival um, sort of system of things where I will probably do 50 or 60 performances of R&J in Twelfth Night. Um, is that, you know, with only 10 opportunities to do it in front of an audience, we are really investigating um, wholeheartedly um, what it is like to be witnessed by an audience and have them participate um, with Shakespeare Bash. I think that's that's an incredible, um, you know, it, it sort of uh, encourages risk, I think. You know, I can't take anything for granted because I will wake up on the morning of February 5th or 6th and go, oh, that's how I should have done that. Um, but that's truthfully how I do it at the festivals too, is I wake up on November 1st and I go, damn it, I spent all summer in this corner and I completely lost this other corner. I think one of the gifts that, you know, we're given at the festival is the length of time. Not only are we rehearsing in rep, so you have digestion time. It's actually very similar to Shakespeare Bash in that we we rehearse part-time um, for a longer stretch of time. So we're we're only rehearsing three days a week. And that means that between that Monday and Thursday rehearsal, you have a few days to digest, to let things percolate, to have the discoveries sort of arrive rather than what I think happens with, you know, or can happen with a three-week rehearsal period or a two-week rehearsal period is, okay, we better just get it up. We better get it up and going and it's over before you know it. Um, I love at the festival this, um, yeah, the gift of time and also that particularly with the main stage Shakespeare's, you're only doing them twice a week. So when they come around, you are itching to do them again and excited to dive back into the story to the world um costume lighting sound the the way the audience grows over time that there's sort of student matinees 
um, towards the end of the semester and then you're into the summer and then there's the American month where all the Americans are up and they're a totally different ball game that you have to surf. Um, just like there's, there's not many places I think can boast, um, inviting such an international group of people to, uh, witness the work. And, um, and I, I love the ride. It is, uh, yeah, going into my seventh season, I'm starting to become a, <laughs> starting to become a bit familiar with how it feels, how my body goes through the long experience. What is February like versus what is July like versus what is October? And, um, I think my goal this year is to spend a little bit more time in present moment. I think it's very easy to put your head down, wake up and it's August. And, um, there is a beauty to what we do and an immense, um, investment. I, I won't say cost because it does feel like we're, there's an exchange. I put in a year of my life to work on those shows and be here and, and be a part of that, that environment. And I think what comes out of it, especially for Shakespeare and myself as a, as an actor who likes to do Shakespeare is that I am sharp. It is the, the repetitions. I feel like I'm getting to dive into it and practice it every day um, in a room with some of the most incredible people. And, uh, and that is, that is truly a gift that I, um, that I, you know, I think is unique to the festival in terms of its time and, um, and resources. Um, you alluded to, uh, the length of time that, uh, one is, uh, uh, in Stratford, uh, from rehearsal to the end of the season. Um, it's, like February to November, or if something gets held over, maybe even into December. Um, that's a long time to be working on, on something and to be going for so long, especially in, in rep and all of those things. What, how do, what's the survival kit for an actor going into a festival like that look like? Oh, that's a good question. Well, well, fortunately with the Stratford Festival, they have an incredible coaching team. There is a team of, um, of vocal coaches, movement coaches. Um, there are, you know, they get visits from, uh, physiotherapists or there's a connection to physio and Cairo and things like that in the town to take care of your body as, as the season goes on and wear and tear. You know, my brain thinking about playing Tybalt in a couple of weeks is thinking about that sword fight and how do I go from February to November? Um, making sure that my body, um, gets through that and not just gets through that, but, <laughs> you know, maybe better than survival we can aim for. But fortunately, um, part of the provided toolkit is that coaching support, um, the support of the community in terms of, you know, massage and physio and your, your body and stuff like that. I also think that, um, there's such a wealth of knowledge, um, in the, exchange of intergenerational experience um you know i i have mentors and colleagues who at this point i've worked with for a long time that i can always go to with a question or um hey have you ever noticed this about this play or this scene or you know so that when you feel like you get your 45 minutes on the scene once every couple weeks because of the rep rehearsal that you can continue that work alive while, um, while you may not be in front of the director. And I do think that from month to month, the landscape changes so much based on 
you, know, you start with one show, and then the second one starts, and you'll be teching one while you're previewing the other, and then they both open, and then you start the third one. The landscape changes so much that it kind of, each year I find, teaches you how to do that specific thing. There is not really a one-size-fits-all. Um, knowing that there's sword fighting coming up, I know that body conditioning is going to be a huge part of my um, of my year. Other years, it may be a little bit more of a vocal conditioning or, or caring for my mental health, my emotional state. Um, depends on what's happening in my life, what the ask is at the festival, and the surprises along the way. But um, yeah, as I said, it, uh, it, it is just now, after seven years, um, seven seasons over almost a decade, starting to feel like, I understand this container, this you know, I uh, sort of cheekily refer to it as the cruise ship gig. Like, you get on and we're going. And we get off at port a couple times where I can go to Toronto for a day or, uh, you know, Shaw and go see some shows. Friends can come visit. But you're on. You're on six days a week. In, in this case, I start my first rehearsal February 16th. And I think I close October 27th or 28th or something um, with the option to extend into November. So, recognizing the container and going, yeah, along the way, there will be some rises and falls. And I know I've been through it before and I've, I've got the tools to, uh, to manage it. And I've got the community around me to ask for help when I need. Um, I wanted to take some time to talk about, uh, sudden spark collective, um, which is a, a project you, you, uh, you created with your collaborator, Alan Denny. Um, and that was a, a, a sort of a pandemic. Everybody has sort of had their pandemic uh, projects. Um, how far into the pandemic did it take you to be like, I got to be doing something? Um, and uh, what? Tell me about the projects. And 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 does uh, does Sudden Spark have a life after the pandemic? Yeah. So Sudden Spark came came about um, uh, as you mentioned with my dear pal Ellen Denny. Um, we met in 2019, she was doing a, an internship on the other side of the table at Crow's Theatre while I was performing in um, uh, Towards Youth, a play on Radical Hope um, by Andrew Kushner. And that was, that was when we met each other. And in, in that context, uh, you know, I didn't know Ellen's work as a performer um, or a writer. Um, and then I very quickly got to as we were connected on social media and, and became uh, friends. And it was throughout um, that first phase of 2020 when everyone was saying goodbye to their projects that she and Alex Ferber, who were supposed to do Saltwater Moon at the Guild Festival Theater, filmed a snippet, sat on those beautiful steps, those beautiful marble steps, uh, sitting, you know, six or eight feet apart from one another doing a scene from the show. And, uh, and she had posted it and I'd responded saying, Oh, I would have loved to have seen that. Like, it's such a shame to say goodbye to that project. And that would have been maybe July. And we kept chatting. What is, what is the state of theater right now? Where will we go from here? Will it ever come back in the way that we want it to or recognize it? And from that started a question of what is the kind of story we need right now? And then Ellen's always said this, that, uh, after we met working on Towards Youth, she's, she sort of keeps a running list in her head of people she'd like to work with. And that after that experience, for whatever, I was fortunate enough to merit that, that mind list. And um, so we met in a park uh, near her place, and we sat under a willow tree uh, on 
separate blankets, rained, and we talked about the state of the theater and what we were going to do. And we came up with the idea of a winter rom-com, something for either Christmas or Valentine's Day. And I had never written anything before. And I knew that Ellen is always working on five or six projects all the time. Um, I admire that woman so, so, so much. And I learned quite a lot working with her um, about so many things. But it was certainly a challenge, one that I didn't know that I could rise to. And um, she was like, well, do you want to write something together? And I said, sure. And she looked at me dead in the eyes, as a way only Ellen Denny could do. And she said, I finish the things that I start. And I said, okay, I, loud and clear, I will, I will take you on. Let's do that. And at the time, I did not know was going, what, what was going to happen, where we were going to go. Um, and we team wrote a winter rom-com that we called February A Love Story for Valentine's Day. And that was many, many Zoom sessions over a Google Doc, making changes, writing one scene, plotting things out, and then switching and making notes on each other's work. And I think the result ended up being this kind of, you know, I think of Shakespeare and Fletcher and what that must have been like to go two totally different writing styles, a, a person who's never written before finding their writing style, and a very accomplished person working with um, a newbie. And I think what the play reflects is a kind of product that we could not have created alone that exists purely because it is the two of us. And so the idea was that we would perform it live. And as the Delta wave hit and 2020 turned to 2021, it was clear we were not going to get that live in-person outdoor, even outdoor at that time. We weren't allowed to gather in Toronto in, in groups more than five. And then it was only your household. Um, and so we had to give the dream of being able to do it. One of our Google Docs was the multiple budgets. That, okay, this is how we'll do it if we get a grant. Oh, well, we didn't get one. So this is what we'll do if we have to beg, borrow, and steal. Oh, we're not allowed to be outdoors. And the last thing that I, I had sort of thrown out there as an idea that I, di I didn't think she thought I was serious about was the film. And so we drew up, you know, what would this budget be, the beg, borrow, and steal film version. And because film sets were allowed to continue with a testing capacity and the theater was, you know, dead in the water, we shot and produced, um, directed by Mari Bab, uh, the first project of Sudden Spark Collective, which was, February love story. And then it went on to be on the Stratfest at home streaming platform with Stratford Festival. And, uh, you know, it had so many other lives. We ended up being able to do it in person at Globus Theatre. That was incredible. Um, and then that brought about uh, more projects. We, we um, produced another short film that was animated uh, with, uh, with the, the beautiful work of our friend in Gabonabea, who uh, is such a talented performer and artist. And all of these collaborations just sort of came out of people having a, maybe a little bit more time than they normally would, and all the good faith in the world to create these heartwarming stories for the pandemic. And of course, since, you know, a majority of reg regular life, uh, quote unquote, has returned to Ellen and I in terms of our work that was very familiar to us before the pandemic, Sudden Spark is on a bit of a hold until the next, until the next crest of a project comes our way but we we keep in touch we continue to collaborate in little ways um and uh and i i'm always dreaming of things now i think i've got the ellen bug where you know i've got a couple of projects in my head and if i ever put pen to paper and have time to do that at some point 
maybe later in the summer that can be a little pet project um who knows we may we may soon be seeing more from sudden spark collective in the future so i mean the idea of of creative because if you haven't written before it's it, it can be pretty frightening um but then when you when you've done it it's a muscle and so you the that muscle once you work it it just it keeps getting more it's like why when you if you want to write a lot write a lot you know because it just keeps going um have you found that aside from the the ideas of sudden spark are you feeling called to write on your own or is this specifically a, a collaborative thing that you think that 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 way of writing works best for you i think it's really interesting that my first um, experience with it was collaboratively because now given the workload to write a thing produce a thing and be a part of a thing i go i don't know how people could do this alone and of course like at no stage does anyone really ever do it alone except that you are writing your concepts down or you know trying to plot things out grabbing your ideas doing the messy stuff that you don't want anyone to see and then at a certain point you are inviting other people in workshopping it or doing a reading and somebody's giving feedback like all processes end up being some form of collaborative even one person shows how directors and you know designers and, and stuff like that so i think for my next projects should i have time energy and money to dive into them which is a confluence of things i find very scarce these days um i would i would certainly depending on the project open it up to um collaborators at a certain time Right now, I've got this like, uh, there's a story that's been kind of haunting me, uh, no pun intended, uh, that is a horror film uh, concept. And I'm such a scaredy cat. I was not into horror movies. And then I watched uh, Midsummer online in a Zoom watch party with my friends when I was alone in my apartment and they were alone in their apartment. And I, uh, it, that could have scarred me forever. Instead, it made me a, uh, a horror buff who wants to write one of his own. So is that a Sudden Spark Collective project? Probably not. Heartwarming stories to get us through uh, soup for the pandemic soul. I don't know that that's the right avenue for that. But that's the next thing I think I'm called to write. And who knows, by the time I actually get down to it, there may be a production of Mackers that comes up and I go, oh, well, this suits my, this fills my need for horror. And now I don't need to write that thing. Yeah. Um, it's funny, uh, you know, as a, as a, as a, as a, as an avowed scaredy cat myself, like I, my girlfriend <laughs> loves horror. She's a horror buff. She loves ghost stories. You know, she loves all kinds of stuff. I can't watch it. So it's like, she, she'll do it and I'll go off and I'll do something else. Um, but I love creating horror. There's a, I, I think that's one of the ways to survive it is to go, if I can engage with this, not from the it's working on me, but from the curiosity of how is that working on me? Yes. Yes. Um, yeah. Then, you know, you've sort of, uh, you beat the bugaboo. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, I kind of want to go back to something you mentioned really early in our conversation about being able to hear, um, in, in the text of two noble kinsmen, um, when it's Shakespeare and when it's Fletcher, um, do you find that as somebody that, that that's really apparent to you as somebody who's done a lot of Shakespeare? Or do you think that that's apparent for like to the ear of almost anybody who would hear the, the, the language spoken? 
Um, I wonder if, you know, it's hard to speak on behalf of someone encountering it for the first time because, um, you know, I'd be very curious to ask even some of my uh, feeder pals who have worked on Shakespeare, whether they can tell one or the other. But um, certainly from my, um, from my ears, Fletcher is a little bit more long-winded. Fletcher is trying to cram a lot of syllables into lines. So there's a lot of long lines. The meter is kind of all over the place. And certainly for the stuff that Palamon is, um, you know, that heightened emotional state that I was talking about, those, those commas and those sentences could be anywhere. <laughs> and so it's made it very challenging to learn because I go, okay, well, why is he qualifying it just this way? And, and then suddenly you'll break into a, a, a chunk that's written by Shakespeare and it feels like it just clips along a little bit easier, a little bit lighter. I don't know that one is better or worse in this particular case. They're just different. There will be, I think, some moments in which an audience can go, huh, I, you know, I bet that's written by a different person than I was just listening to. Um, but whether you're, you're probably right about the shift, but you may surprise yourself as to whether or not you're right that it's Shakespeare versus Fletcher. <laughs> kind of comically, we've been talking um, um, in the room about these two speeches that um, the character Amelia has. My friend Kate is, is performing that role. Um, one is written by uh, Shakespeare, one is written by Fletcher, but they are very similar in their concepts that mm -hmm. they're uh, exploring. And uh, I mean, there could be a whole university course on, uh, <laughs> on how those two speeches um, uh, dive into the same concepts. And, uh, and so, yeah, it'll be very interesting for an audience to come in and go either, oh, wow, I didn't realize it was team, team written. Um, or it's very clearly something other than just a straight up Shakespeare play. When you look at something like R and J, I mean, rhyming couplet, like all over the place that doesn't exist as much in this play. It's a lot mm. more complex meter structure. Um, so in a way it can feel more modern, more colloquial, less um poetic mm. um but yeah i i will be interested to chat with people as i always am after they see the show yeah yeah i remember the first time that it, it struck me that that elizabethan writers all had different voices because you know you knew shakespeare you, shakespeare then you know you start hearing about marlowe and 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 johnson and other people and, and suddenly you're 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 okay so let's let's take a look at these people and see how they're how do they write and suddenly realizing that they sounded different, that they felt different, that the, the way that they constructed his speech was different. Johnson is really wants you to know how educated he is. And uh, 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 Marlowe uh, really is in love with his own words. And so you can really sort of feel these things in the in in the text. Um, and I think it's a fascinating thing to sort of like realize that uh, I, I kind of feel like there is a reason why we know Shakespeare. And it's not like you know, it's 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 not because he was actually written by Queen Elizabeth or whatever. It's because he really understood people and wrote really great language. And it's really great to encounter him at different stages in his own creation. You read an early play like Titus Andronicus, and I've always thought that, you know, that's that's him writing some kind of thriller, you know, blood and gore every couple, you know, every hundred lines is somebody getting a hand cut off or something. And, uh, and he's a young author. He's trying stuff out. Um, 
in the concepts of that play, he's exploring things that he later goes back to with Mackers and R3. And, you know, I, I think there's even Coriolanus, things like that are, are present in those early plays. He's not quite done with their concepts. He writes a comedy of errors and there's, you know, like themes in the comedies that come back. And so it's fun to imagine uh, a person, if indeed a person he was. Um, and you know, neither here nor there about that argument, but I, I'm, I'm cheered at the very least that humanity produced, uh, such works. Um, yeah, you get to sort of, as I'm encountering it at different stages of my life, sort of admire what this person is trying to express about humanity or what questions they're asking and how those get refined or shifted throughout the course of his life, you know, and a very interesting life it is. Um, so yeah, I realize that sounds super fawny over the guy. And I guess that's kind <laughs> of what I've become in my old age, but, uh, <laughs> but there we are. I must, I must embrace it. It's yeah. where, it's where the bread and butter has been for me. <laughs> I mean, absolutely. It's funny because I, I, I have a, a, a friend of mine who, uh, you know, went to school and did a whole bunch of stuff. And then for many years after they were done, theater school was like, nobody needs to do Shakespeare ever again. Nobody needs to go to do Shakespeare ever again. It's dated. It's over. Forget it. We know, don't need to touch that again. And then went to school in New York and studied Shakespeare properly. And suddenly they were like, oh my God, now I understand. Yeah. And it's funny how you can be absolutely certain that it's over, that you never need to touch it again, that, that you know, why are we doing these old plays? And suddenly then like being really taught, um, the plays and, and the language and, and how it works and to suddenly have that shift and go, oh no, no, now I understand that there's a reason why these plays keep being done. Absolutely. Yeah. I get, I get hooked on bits of language. They, they come back the, in, in the way that when you watch a movie, you really love those lines that stick. And I understand how to somebody encountering it for the first time or for the first time since school and maybe a bit reticent that it can feel sort of daunting to sit in a room full of people who know it so intimately and feel that you're somehow out of the, of the in group with, you know, this, this nerdy fixation of whatever it is. And I, um, a little anecdote I have is, um, last time I did Shakespeare in High Park, um, that's one of those 90 minute edits that they do. And there are people who arrive to that show in, in broad daylight with their copy of their scripts in their hand and flipping pages as you've gone and slashed it, right? And I almost feel like as I hear the pages turning and they're trying to keep up with us of turning over and saying, it'll be page 263 in your, in your Arden edition, and uh, we're going to keep going with the story here, if you don't mind. <laughs> so that can feel very, I can see how that can feel very stuffy or not inviting. Uh, I do think, you know, one of the things that brings me back to Shakespeare Bash time and time again is the invitation to encounter uh, a largely unedited script um, that is really just trying to put the play up on its own merit and uh, and and asking you to engage with it wherever you're at. It's mm. our responsibility to make it digestible and uh, and relatable and also not to and also to go, this is hard. This is a bit obscure. What is your takeaway from that? You will not come away with 100% saliency of what it is. That is not the goal. Yeah. The goal is to experience something, you know? Yeah. It's definitely great to, to, to have somebody who, who maybe, you know, a lot of people who go to see Two Noble Kinsmen are not going to be uh, people who know it intimately. 
that's the joy of like one of the rarely performed plays is um it, it most people have not seen them very often so you can go and i think there will be fewer people who with their copies of uh, uh you know <laughs> going through it and huffing when you skip something or you've cut something it's 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 really a great opportunity i think to experience something anew absolutely and to see maybe where some of your um favorite modern stories have pulled from this from this tale because shakespeare himself pulls this from chaucer um it's a knight's tale so in in the way that we you know as humanity continue to um pull from the human well so was shakespeare he was pulling from the holland shed uh, he was pulling from you know not only authors of his time but historians of his time and then and then playing and messing with the history it's um it's just the twas ever thus yes. with artists <laughs> pulling on one another's strings and going well let's take this one a little further down the rabbit hole so i am so excited to have audiences experience this play um you know as i say it is it is the play we are doing the play so um, engaging with their feedback and and feeling their reactions, and over the course of a ten only ten performance run, uh, it'll be really interesting night after night to go. Where are the areas that I can kind of create an average response? Like where this is where people sort of react this way, mm. and this other way, it's not so clear. Um, you know, without uh, without spoiling too much, um, there there are moments of uh, direct address to the audience um in the structure of the script that i think invite people to um consider what it is they have just witnessed i hope it breeds lots of discussion and uh, that people go away from it at least saying well that was fascinating what a, what an interesting story yeah yeah absolutely well emilio thank you so much for joining me this evening thanks so much for giving me some of your time and uh as always looking forward to seeing the latest show from shakespeare bash Oh, thanks so much for having me on. It's been good to chat. This has been an episode of Stageworthy. Stageworthy is produced, hosted, and edited by Phil Rickaby. That's me. If you enjoyed this podcast and you listen on Apple Podcasts or Spotify, you can leave a five-star rating. And if you listen on Apple Podcasts, you can also leave a review. Those reviews and ratings help new people find the show. If you want to keep up with what's going on with Stageworthy and my other projects, you can subscribe to my newsletter by going to philrickaby.com slash subscribe. And remember, if you want to leave a tip, you'll find a link to the virtual tip jar in the show notes or on the website. You can find Stageworthy on Twitter and Instagram at StageworthyPod, and you can find the website with the complete archive of all episodes at stageworthy.ca. If you want to find me, you can find me on Twitter and Instagram at Phil Rickaby. And as I mentioned, my website is philrickaby.com. See you next week for another episode of Stageworthy. Worthy.